Friends, would you open in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 5, and we're going to study the next few verses in this passage. Hear now God's word. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray together. Jesus, if you've tasted death on our behalf, what have you held back from us? We have everything we need for life and godliness. And so I pray that you would just apply those riches to us this morning as we feed on your word. Would you do that, we ask in your name. Amen. Well, in our yard, we, uh, our family has been trying to take over our backyard. It's been dominated for a long time by pine trees and by ivy. And the ivy was so bad at one point, it just kind of grew from both sides of the yard and met somewhere in the middle. And if you've ever tried to like remove that from your yard, it's really just annoying process, but we've dubbed it going fishing because you grab a line of this ivy from the trampoline and you start pulling on it and you start reeling this thing in and all of a sudden you're walking across the entire yard till you're behind the playhouse to pull it up and it feels like you're fishing except there's never any fish on the end of it. It's just sore arms at the end of it. We experience that with ivy. That's essentially what's about to happen in our passage today, because the moment you pick up one end, which is Hebrews chapter 2, you find that he's actually quoting from Psalm 8, and so you pull the line until you get to Psalm 8, and then realize Psalm 8 is just a way to get us to Genesis chapter 1, and you're pulling the line straight across our Bibles. I mean, you've got a thumb in Hebrews 2, you've got a pointer finger in Psalm 8, and you've got a pinky in Genesis 1, and you're going to need another hand to sort this thing out. I'm excited about this passage today, not just by what it says, but how it says it, because you have a brilliant exegete in the writer to the Hebrews who knows his Bible extremely well. John and I were reading a book of theology together, and it's a great book, but one of the best parts about the book is one of the endorsements that's written on the back of this book. This is what one author says about another author. Listen to this. When you read this book, you suddenly realize how timid most Christian theologians are, tepidly offering us a few insights to edify our comfort with the status quo. Peter Lightheart is like a lightning strike from a more ancient, more courageous Christian past, his flaming pen fueled by biblical acuity and scholarly rigor. Wow. As in the words of John, if you wrote that on my tombstone, I could die today. What else do I need to be described of me? But really, you could apply that endorsement to the writer, to the Hebrews, and to the way he's writing. He's doing something courageous and different, something we're not accustomed to seeing. 
As John said, we had previously spent a lot of time in the book of 1 Samuel, and 1 Samuel introduced us to the idea of typology. Typology is the study of types or shadows, and so in 1 Samuel, you get a whisper of a king and a kingdom. You get to see David begin to rise to power as a king and establish the kingdom of Israel, but we understand that that's a type, that's a foreshadow that makes us look forward all the way to Jesus, who is the anti-type or the fulfillment. He's the real king who brings the real kingdom. And so you've got this foreshadowing, this typology happening in the book of 1 Samuel. Well, this is not a fair comparison because Samuel's the Old Testament before Jesus and Hebrews is the New Testament after Jesus. But if 1 Samuel is the flanograph of typology, then the book of Hebrews is the PowerPoint. I mean, the book of Hebrews is what takes grainy images and shows us in crystal clarity what the type of Jesus is. I was really looking for a punchier illustration than PowerPoint, but that's kind of all we use today. So maybe you could say 1 Samuel is the flanograph and Hebrews is the hologram of what we're talking about. We're we're about to get three-dimensional typology when we read this. Okay, so here's the type. Here's what we're talking about. In verses 6 through 8, Hebrews quotes Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? And that quote, it culminates in this line, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, would you keep a finger in Hebrews chapter two and would you turn with me to Psalm eight? That's what he's quoting. You look at the footnote of your Bible and you find that he's just reaching back to Psalm eight, which when we get there, we realize that that's a Psalm that was written by King David. And King David wrote that Psalm thinking about God's kindness in creating man and humanity and giving man dominion over the rest of creation. So if you're there in Psalm 8, you can look at verses 6 and following. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. As soon as you're reading Psalm 8, you realize that he's really getting your attention back to Genesis chapter 1. When you read about dominion over all created things, you're thinking about Genesis 1. And so while you've got another finger in Psalm 8, would you flip with me to Genesis chapter 1? This is what the writer to the Hebrews is doing. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God has created everything and then he's created man. And then he gives man this instruction, which reminds us of Psalm 8. He says... Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in my Bible, Hebrews 2 is page 1001. Genesis chapter, or Psalm chapter 8 is page 450. And Genesis chapter 1 is page 1 in my Bible. We have just crisscrossed the entire length of our Bible in one passage. And now Hebrews chapter 2 is about to snap us back to attention with a surprising twist. Because when we read in our passage, what is man, that was written by the man David, thinking about the man Adam, The writer to the Hebrews is not talking about the first Adam, that is the Adam of creation, Adam and Eve. He takes all of this and he applies it to the last Adam, that is the person of Jesus. Not making this up, look at verse 9 in Hebrews chapter 2. He says, we see him for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. The typology is beginning to unfurl here. Adam was a type of 
of Jesus. Jesus now becomes the last Adam. Jesus fulfills what Adam couldn't do. They're connected in our passage from across the lengths of our entire Bibles. Well, that's incredible to find that connection. That was a really brilliant move. We watched some hermeneutical gymnastics to get from one testament to the other testament. We still have to ask the question, so what? I mean, what does that mean? Why does that matter to learn that Adam's the first Adam and Jesus is the last Adam? What's the deal? We've got a three-year-old in our church, not my three-year-old, who when he's telling his side of the story, he likes to say, okay, okay, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Here's how it happened. Here's the deal, (laughs) which I love. It's so endearing and you want to believe his side of the story. But essentially, that's what we're saying this morning. Here's the deal. Here's why the writer to the Hebrews is connecting Adam, the first Adam, and Jesus, the last Adam. The first Adam was created to be fruitful and immortal. I want you to remember those two words. When God made Adam, he made him to be fruitful and immortal. He had a perfect relationship with the world in his work. He was completely at harmony with the world, and he had access to the tree of life, which meant he could eat it and he could live forever. He was fruitful and immortal. In fact, if Adam had obeyed God and he had not eaten from the forbidden tree, we today would still be living in that benefit of how God originally created us to be. We would experience this today. We would experience perfect satisfaction in our work and everlasting life. Now, many of you work in cubicles today. I don't know if that was part of God's original creation or if that was invented by Satan after the fall. But a lot of us, that's what we experience during our workday. I want you to imagine a world in which you leave your workstation every single day feeling satisfied and fulfilled. You have been useful in all that you've done. I want you to think about the day's end of maintaining your home and raising your kids and providing for your family and to think of a feeling of full and complete satisfaction with that. Had we not fallen from the garden, that would be the experience of humanity. We would have perfect satisfaction in what we do forever without boredom or despair in the presence of God. Can you even imagine a world in which that would be the case? But we know we don't experience that because Adam did not obey the command of God. He disobeyed and he fell. And when our first parents fell, we inherited the curse that was placed on Adam, which happens at these very two points of being fruitful and immortal. Listen to the curse in Genesis 3.19. It's by the sweat of your brow you eat your food until you return to the ground. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. In other words, humanity, you will be frustrated with your work, and you will die. The very two gifts that God gave us to be fruitful and immortal are gone. Our inherited human condition in this sin and separation from God also comes with frustration in our work and in our child rearing, and it comes with death. Now to think about this another way to explore this condition that we now stand in further It's fair to say that what we want more than anything is these things that we have been designed to do. We want more than anything to be a people who are fruitful and immortal. In other words, we want to be a people who matter forever. 
This is how we're designed as human beings. This is how we're wired. This is how God created us. And it is very natural for us to desire these things. That's good and wholesome. But here's what happens. God gives us and designs us with these good and wholesome gifts. And then sin enters the world and it taints and twists absolutely everything that we do or desire. It turns these God-given gifts and desires into idols and slave drivers in our lives. Think about these things. Think about the desire to matter. It doesn't take a lot of imagination for us to see how a desire to matter can become a lust in us for reputation, for wealth, for domination. Let me just give you an example about this desire to matter. One of the ways that this plays out in my life is very simply, I want other people to like me. I personally, I just want other people to like me. I think you share that desire with me. That's a God-given desire. That's a God-given desire to be a part of community, to be so intimately connected with a body of people that were useful and life-giving to them. And it's a good thing to like and be liked. But the second sin gets a hold of this thing, it is absolutely awful. This God-given desire to be liked by other people, all of a sudden in my life, it becomes this obsession. It becomes a thing that I think and I worry about. It becomes a thing where I have an interaction with somebody and I walk away and I think about all the things that I should have said or did to make myself painted in a better light. I'm driving in the car and I'm listening to Justin Bieber at full blast and I pull up to a stoplight and someone's got the window down and I turn the radio off. Why? Because I want people to like me and to think better of me. I pretend like I'm doing something else. I switch the channel. I... It absolutely touches everything I do. If it affects me at a stoplight, I can't imagine the ways in which this desire gets twisted in other areas of my life. It affects everybody in the human condition. Or think about another example. I want to be liked. I also want to be successful. And you think about this desire to succeed, and you understand that this is a God-given desire. It's a God-given desire to want to put my hand to the plow and to bear good fruit. I praise God that he gave me that desire. But the moment my sin taints and twists that thing, it becomes absolutely awful in my life. In fact, it becomes an idol in my life. What was a God-given desire to be successful has now become something that I want more than anything in the world. I would never say this out loud to other people. I desire this so much that I would actually want success maybe at the expense of other people. I wouldn't mind if someone had to lose if that meant that I got to win. That's just how deep this begins to go. It begins to be hard for me to celebrate other people's successes, and it becomes hard for me not to drop hints about my own success. John the Baptist, he said in his ministry, I want a ministry where I decrease and Jesus increases, and here I am wondering if there's a way we can't have it both ways. If I scratch Jesus' back, will he scratch mine? I have a desire to matter. I have a desire to be liked. I have a desire to succeed. And it touches absolutely everything I do. Think about in us this God-given innate desire to live forever. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of imagination for us to understand that this desire to live forever can become a lust in us for immortal glory. You and I were afraid of aging and we're afraid of dying. 
And we understand that if our bodies can't beat death, if we are truly going to die, then we want to do something that will extend beyond the grave, right? I want to put a flag in something. I want to change the world in some way. I want to live vicariously through my kids who maybe will be able to succeed in ways I wasn't able to succeed. I'm afraid of death and the end of all things. I want something in my life to exist forever. We understand when we see the lay of the land that we are children of our father, Adam. That in a frustrated desire to matter forever, we will fight and scrap and pull and push for food by the sweat of our brow, and then we will die and return to dust. That's the cold, hard truth of the human condition. There's no way around that. At least that was the human condition until Jesus, the last Adam, appeared and he picked up the role that the first Adam dropped and he carried it to perfect and absolute completion. Jesus is the second, the last, and the better Adam. Now, if you want to find this typology in your Bibles, there's no better place than Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul makes this connection between the two, that in Adam you had this reign of death, but now in the last Adam, Jesus, you have this reign of life. Well, Hebrews takes those thoughts in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, and he picks them up and takes them further. Yes, it's true what Paul said, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and brings peace between us and God. That's fantastic. We will sing the praises of a Jesus who forgives us forever and ever. But I tell you that that's just kindergarten in the massive work of what Jesus has done on the cross. The writer to the Hebrews, he's inviting us to enter first grade with respect to the cross because he tells us, That when Jesus died on the cross, when he rose again from the dead, he achieves the two things we desire most, immortality and fruitfulness. Think about what Jesus does and how he does this. Think about our application with respect to these two things. With respect to immortality, Jesus, the last Adam, does what the first Adam couldn't do. Verse 9, he beats death once and for all. You know, we've said so many less than wonderful things about the first Adam that I wanted to invite him here to kind of give his side of the story and tell us what his perspective was, but I can't because the man who was designed to live forever is no longer here. He died. He fell and he died. Not so with the last Adam, Jesus, verse 9. Jesus tastes death for everyone. Verse 15, he delivers all those who through the fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery. Now I want us all to hear this point right now. We're a church community, we're a family, we're committed to learning about and being changed by Jesus as long as we're here in Columbia on this earth together. That's what we're going to do, that's what we're going to do together. We're going to continue this lifelong process. Here's one of the things I want us to learn as a body of believers. What is the potential of a crowd of people who aren't afraid to die? What happens to a group of people? How do they become transformed? What's different about a body of believers who no longer fear the slavery of death? 
I mean, we might not feel like we have a lot of resources to bring to the table. We might not feel like we have a lot of spiritual gifts. But what will Jesus do in a community of people for whom this world is not all that there is? He will change us and he will change this city because this is the reign of life in the last Adam. Number two, with respect to fruitfulness, Jesus, the last Adam, does what the first Adam couldn't do. Verse 8, he brings everything in subjection under his feet so that whatever we do as believers matters. We read in verse 8 that every square inch of the universe is under Jesus' feet. It's in subjection to him. Now, it doesn't feel that way right now in light of the fall and in light of the suffering that we experience, but it is in subjection to him, and it will be fully realized in the new heavens and the new earth. Chapter 1 has already told us that this is the story of the world. It was made by Jesus. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he is going to inherit the world back to himself. And that means that the things that matter in this life, the things that bear fruit, are the things that fall in line with the world that Jesus wins. This is not true for those who are outside of this story and outside of the world that Jesus is winning. Jesus, he once said to his unbelieving brothers, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. In other words, if you're operating outside the world that Jesus wins, if you're building the Tower of Babel and not the temple of the living God, it simply does not matter what you do or when you do it. In other words, it's dust. It's vapor, it's Ecclesiastes, it's a vanity of vanities, and it will burn away on the last day. But in some stupendous, unbelievable way, Jesus says to the Christian, whatever you do in my name, whatever you do professionally in my name, whatever you do artistically in my name, wherever you serve your family and your neighbor in my name, whether you're changing the world or changing a dirty diaper, whether you put your hand to the plow in my name or lay down your life for another person in my name, all of it will matter forever. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. If this is the world that Jesus wins, if this is the world in which we now taste this reign of life in Christ, then there is no longer such thing as anything that could be done in vain in the Lord. All of it will matter forever. Let's pray together. Jesus, sometimes it's easier to believe that you made the world than to believe that you're going to inherit the world, that you're going to take what you see, that you're going to take the sum of the souls in this room and the work that you've called us to, and you're going to draw it back to yourself as your inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, make us a church that does not fear death. Make us a church that bears good fruit done in the Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.